This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Julian, Joanna, Caleb F., Levi, and Lydia. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and then we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. We have two this time, one from Julian and one from Joanna. First, Julian asks, what are the four horsemen of the apocalypse? The four horsemen of the apocalypse are found in Revelation chapter 6. But before we go there, let's go back to the Old Testament. In the last of Zechariah's night visions, which we read about recently in Zechariah chapter 6, the prophet Zechariah sees four chariots, and each of those chariots has horses of a different color. Now, that image is picked up on in the book of Revelation, which, as we saw in our Zechariah sermon series, is heavily influenced by Old Testament prophecy. In addition to Zechariah, the four horsemen draw on Ezekiel as well. Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 1 of the four living creatures who follow after the presence of God, and also the four judgments that God sends on Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 14. Those four judgments are the sword and famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, which is disease. Now, in Revelation chapter 6, John describes the four horsemen. There's a white horse first, then a red one, and then a black one, and finally a pale horse. And John actually quotes Ezekiel 14 verse 21 when he writes that the horsemen are given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So, the four horsemen are symbols of judgment, a judgment that is released by God as punishment for sin. But they don't just punish, the punishment also purifies. It's a purification of the righteous, which comes by testing their faith. So, that's the big picture. But of course, when it comes to interpreting the precise nature of each of these symbols, believe me, there are a lot of different views. In fact, if you're intrigued by this passage in Revelation 6, you could really go very deep into research, reading different theories and commentaries, which is great. But overall, the idea is that as part of God's judgment on sinful creation, a series of punishments are being released, and these are symbolized by the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And now Joanna asks, what will our bodies be like in heaven? Well, When Jesus returns and the dead are raised, our spirits will be reunited with our bodies, and that's called bodily resurrection. And it's what all those who believe in Jesus look forward to. That is the hope of the gospel. In the same way that Jesus died and was raised again physically, 
we too will be raised, and then we will live in God's presence in the new creation. But our bodies at that time will be transformed. The Bible has two ways of describing this transformation. It says that we will have uh, what it calls spiritual bodies, and it says that we will be glorified. Now, Paul talks about having a spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15. When you think about it, that's a curious term, spiritual body. We think of bodies, we think physical, not spiritual. So what does it mean for a body to be spiritual? Well, here's what it seems to mean. First of all, we will still have physical human bodies, We're not going to spend eternity as just spirits. We will have flesh just like Jesus does. But remember, Jesus' body was transformed after the resurrection. For example, he could pass through walls. People who'd known him before didn't always recognize him at first. There was something different about this body that he possessed. So a spiritual body seems to be a perfected human body. It's a human body the way that humans were meant to be. Oh, you mean like Adam and Eve? Well, not exactly, because Adam and Eve, they had bodies that were not affected by sin, yes, but they had also not yet been glorified, so they'd not yet attained to, let's say, a perfect humanity. So the word glorified is another way of talking about being perfected. If Adam and Eve had obeyed instead of disobeyed, then they would eventually have been glorified. But now, the only way to be glorified is through Christ. If we trust in Him, then our bodies will be perfected at the resurrection, and we will have the spiritual bodies that Paul talks about. And now it's time for the big question, which comes this time from Caleb F. Let's give him a round of applause. Caleb asks, why does God sometimes have us flee instead of saving us in a miraculous way? Well, in Matthew's gospel, in the story of Joseph, we saw that God's plan for saving Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus was to have them run away from Herod. The angel told Joseph in a dream to flee to Egypt. And later, after Herod's death, they were told to return. Now, in his comments on this story, the great Reformation theologian John Calvin points out that in flight, there was no appearance of divine protection. In other words, it must have seemed to Joseph that if it was up to him to run away, then God wasn't really protecting them. Because if God was protecting them, he could have sent an army of angels to defeat Herod. The lesson for us in this is to learn that God has many different ways of working. He can work through supernatural means, that army of angels, but that's just one of the many ways that God does things. In fact, it's not at all the normal way that God does things, even in the Bible. In theology, we make a distinction between what we call ordinary means and extraordinary means. Now, here's what that means. When you hear extraordinary, think of miracles and wonders. 
If someone was sick, Jesus could speak a word and that person was healed. That is extraordinary, literally extraordinary or outside the ordinary. But what about the ordinary? Well, uh, take the same sick person and send him to the doctor. He gets some medicine, some rest, and eventually he feels better. There's nothing extraordinary about that. In fact, it's quite ordinary. We call that God working through ordinary means. Now, when God works through extraordinary means, it's hard to deny that it is God working. So this kind of work is often described in the Bible as a sign. In fact, the Greek word that's often translated as miracle is the word for sign. In fact, the whole reason that God sometimes uses these extraordinary means is to testify to his power and to the truth of his word. In other words, he's intending to give signs. The miracles that Jesus performed were signs that he came from the Father and had been given authority. On the other hand, when God works through ordinary means, it's easy to miss the fact that God is working at all. God didn't heal that man, you say. He went to the doctor and the doctor healed him. But we say God worked through the ordinary means of medicine. and That is actually the usual way that God works. Even in the Bible, the extraordinary means were the exception, not the rule. There are certain times in biblical history where miraculous signs are common, but it's not an everyday occurrence. Usually, those signs are tied to some new aspect of God's plan of salvation, showing us that it's God who's doing this. But mostly, the way God works is through simple, ordinary means. Think of it this way. God could give you the gospel by having an angel appear to you in a dream. Wouldn't that be nice? In the Bible, things like that do happen sometimes. But ordinarily, the way you get the gospel is through the preaching of the word, through the sacraments, and through prayer. We call these the ordinary means of grace. Now, God can certainly save apart from these ordinary means, but ordinarily, this is the way he works. There's a funny story that illustrates this well. I come from Louisiana, where there are constant hurricanes and floods. Sometimes the water is so high that people take shelter on their roofs. The story goes that a man sheltering on his roof prayed to God to save him from the flood water, and then a boat came by. But he refused to get in, because he was waiting on God to save him. Now, the moral of the story is, God works through ordinary means. If you're looking for God to save you from the flood, the way he would usually do that is by sending a boat. That's the lesson Joseph learned when he had to flee to Egypt. And it's a good reminder for us as well. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Levi asks, what's your least favorite dinosaur? Well, Levi, as everybody knows, my favorite dinosaur is Triceratops, because when Triceratops rams you with his head, you get stabbed three times. Triceratops is the coolest dinosaur. So, which dinosaur is the least cool? Honestly, this might make people mad, but the answer is Velociraptor. 
Listen, nobody cared about velociraptors until the movie Jurassic Park came out. And after that, it was velociraptor this and velociraptor that. And everybody's favorite dinosaur was velociraptor. But it was obvious to everyone who stopped to think that Triceratops was a lot better than Velociraptor. Remember, Triceratops has three horns. Guess how many horns Velociraptor has? Count them, zero. And you know what else? According to Wikipedia, Velociraptor in real life was roughly the size of a turkey. So, Velociraptor, you turkey, you are my least favorite dinosaur of all. And now Lydia asks, what is your favorite plant? I was almost going to mention my lime tree again, since in addition to being a tree, it is also a plant. But now I have a new favorite plant. But before I mention my new favorite, here's a runner-up. Climbing vines of every kind, like Virginia creeper, for example. I'm trying to get some vines to grow on the trellis in my backyard, and so I want them to know how welcome they are. So vines, you are my second favorite plant. But my number one plant is the plant that grew up in Jonah 4 to give shade to that grumpy prophet. This plant didn't last very long, but while it lasted, it taught us all a valuable lesson. So that is my favorite plant. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if you're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.